Well, it must be Tuesday because here we are again with another episode of the Piano Rhapsody podcast, a podcast where you follow me, an amateur piano player, with the goal of someday playing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, hopefully on this very podcast, maybe a few years down the road. Along the way, we take a look at one of the pieces that I encounter and try to learn a little bit about musical history and theory. Currently, we are on a trip through the ages. Last week, we began with a stop in the Baroque period, which covered the years 1600 to 1750. This week, we're going to pick up right where we left off and cover the years 1750 to 1825, a time span known as the Classical Period. It's probably important to make a note about semantics here. So typically, when a person refers to, quote, classical music these days, it is understood that they are speaking about a genre of instrumental music, including the worlds of piano, orchestra, and just about any instrument, from the Baroque period all the way to modern day. The only instrumental music that the average person would likely comfortably separate from the classical title is jazz. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way the meanings of words evolve throughout the years. But when we're trying to talk a little more specifically about piano music, the term classical specifically refers to this era of roughly 1750 to 1825. So while Bach, Chopin, and Debussy may write, quote, classical music in the general sense, it would not be accurate to label them as classical composers, as they were not alive during this time period. Speaking of Bach, while he may have single-handedly dominated the Baroque period, the classical period was ruled by a triumvirate, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. These classical composers wanted to move away from the ornate Baroque style, and instead preferred to simplify things, focusing on the ideals of proportion, symmetry, and balance. They took their inspiration from the clean lines of Greco-Roman art, which is what the classical title refers to. And it's how we still refer to Greek and Roman art, architecture, and literature. Classical composers aimed to bring a more intellectual approach to music, instead of focusing on the grandeur and elegance of the Baroque period. They decided to limit the use of counterpoint, and instead focus on one melodic line at a time, while the other hand provides accompaniment. The music in this period is hereby less dense than Baroque, and generally easier to listen to. Another major breakaway point from the Baroque period was something we talked about last week, and that is the full embrace of the piano, cruelly leaving the harpsichord in the dark. By the end of the classical period, harpsichords had had their day and largely disappeared. But while our modern pianos have 88 keys and span 7-plus octaves, they didn't start out that way. The first forte pianos only had four. Composers kept pushing the limits of the piano during this time. Beethoven especially was known for breaking piano strings because he wanted them to be able to be louder, and he kept writing pieces that required a greater span of keys. 
Another invention that helped popularize the instrument was the square piano, developed in England in 1766. The square piano was popular with the middle class because once the cover of the piano was down, it doubled as a table. This saved a lot of space in middle class homes that wouldn't normally be able to spare the space for a full-size piano. Piano compositions really began to take center stage at this time, especially since pianos could play loudly enough to be showcased as a concerto instrument. Now, a concerto is a work that showcases a solo instrument with an entire orchestra as accompaniment. So they tend to work best when you can, you know, actually hear the soloist. And since the piano was a keyboard instrument that could vary its volume output, it became a viable instrument for concerto writing. But one of the major musical achievements of the classical period, if not the defining achievement, is the development and dominance of the sonata form. Now, I don't want to dive too deeply into this quite yet, but let's skim the surface. The sonata form consists of three elements, exposition, development, and recapitulation. The exposition opens the sonata with the statement of two subjects. The first one is in the home key, and the second is in a contrasting key, usually the dominant key following that circle of fifths we've talked about several times, or sometimes the relative minor key. The second part of the sonata is the development. During the development, the composer uses the two themes that they introduced in the exposition and plays around with them, building harmonic tension. Then, during the third part, the recapitulation, both subjects return, and this time, both of them are in the home key. So let's take a look at this sonata form in practice. The piece we are going to look at this week is a sonatina from Jan Ladislav Dusik. Dusik was one of those composers and performers that I mentioned earlier, who kept pushing for the expansion of the piano, and was actually one of the first recipients of a six-octave piano. A lot of people would attribute Franz Liszt as a precursor to the modern rock star, but Dusik actually opened this door a bit before Liszt. He was considered as a glamour pianist, as he liked to turn the piano sideways on stage so that the ladies could admire his handsome profile. He was also a bit of a free spirit, as he befriended a prince of Prussia and held events known at the time as musical orgies. Now, in my limited research, I could not really find any details about these events. As you might imagine, Google wasn't particularly helpful in this matter. Naturally, this kind of behavior ended up stirring up trouble in Dusik's marriage. He ended up really letting himself go, and gained so much weight that it's reported that he could not even effectively reach the piano keys. This unhealthy disposition, coupled with his strong affinity for liquor, led Dusik to an early grave by gout in 1812. Can't say the man didn't live. So let's break down the first movement of Dusik's Sonatina in E-flat major, opus 19-20, number 6. 
Now, a sonatina is essentially just a smaller scaled sonata. They tend to be significantly shorter and less difficult, usually sparing content in the development section of the sonata form. This sonatina in particular is an excellent example to use as a beginner's guide to the sonata, because Dusik has separated each section with a pronounced rest. So when you hear a brief silence, that is the hint that means we're moving on to the next step in the sonata form. Also, one more note before we begin. Classical era composers are really big on repeating large sections of their pieces. And I'm not usually that interested in repeating the same thing all over again just for the sake of repeating it. If I followed the repeats as written, this piece would literally take twice as long. The entire thing would be played through twice. So for the sake of keeping things interesting and moving along, I have chosen to ignore the repeat instructions and have played through the piece in a quick two and a half minutes. And in this two and a half minutes, we can highlight all of the major components of the sonata. Now before we begin, we should probably briefly discuss the home key of E-flat major. E-flat major contains three flats, B-flat, E-flat, and A-flat. So this would give us the scale E-flat, F, G, A-flat, B-flat, C, D, E-flat. So keep that in the back of your mind as we dissect this piece. We begin the sonatina with the exposition, the part where the composer introduces the two subjects. Dusik opens the sonatina with his first subject, and following the classical style, the melody line is singular and played with the right hand. The left hand plays an accompaniment of running 16th note broken chords. This pattern will come back several times throughout the piece. So let's give it a good listen to lock it into our brains. The first time we hear this subject, it is established in the home key of the piece, E-flat major. Dusik really drives this home when we hear several descending E-flat major scales played by the right hand during this section. So after the first subject concludes, there's a slight pause, and then the second subject is introduced. True to sonata form, the second subject should be in a contrasting key from the first, and it is no different here. While we started the first subject of the sonatina in the key of E-flat major with three flats, B-flat, E-flat, and A-flat, the second subject changes all of those A-flats to A-naturals. This effectively modulates the piece to a key with only two flats. B flat and E flat, and that key is known as B flat major. So we started out in E flat major, and the second subject is in B flat major. And if we refer back to the E flat major scale, E flat, F, G, A flat, B flat, we can see that B flat is the fifth tone of the scale. So the second subject follows the circle of fifths progression. Another name for this fifth tone is the dominant. So you could also say that the second subject is written in the dominant key. 
which is a pretty common step for the second subject of a sonata. So now that Dusik has established both of his subjects in the exposition, we experience another brief pause, which is uh, slightly exaggerated in my recording due to a page turn. And then we enter the development section. Now this section would generally be the longest in a sonata, but since we're discussing a sonatina here, it's very brief. I think it's actually the shortest of all the three sections. Sometimes, developments are not even present in sonatinas. The big tip-off that we're entering new waters is a return to the first subject, but this time with a jolting modulation from B-flat major, where we were with the second subject, to G major. So let's take a second to compare the two iterations of the first subject. Here's the first subject in the original exposition in E-flat major. And here's the opening of the development, recalling that first subject, but this time putting it in G major. So as I was saying before, the development in this sonatina is short-lived, but it does spend some time flirting with the second subject as well. Then, after a, yeah, you guessed it, a brief pause, we enter the recapitulation, or the return of the subjects. The recapitulation opens with an exact repeat of the first four measures in the exposition. Dusik is calling back his first subject in the original key, but then, as we move on to subject number two, instead of bringing it back in the dominant key, Dusik keeps the A-flats this time and writes the second subject in the home key of E-flat major. Let's take a listen to the difference. Here's subject number two in the exposition in the dominant key of B-flat major, the first time we hear it. And here is subject number two in the recapitulation, in the home key of E-flat major. Changing that second subject to the title key gives us a sense of home. It convinces us that the piece is reaching its finale, and that's exactly what Dusik does when he gives us one final taste of the first subject in the home key of E-flat major. When you have an idea of how the sonata structure works, I think it makes listening to them a little more interesting, especially since they tend to contain quite a bit of repetition or areas that sound remarkably similar. Rather than just passively listening to the piece as a whole, you're able to actively listen and understand the progression. Then it becomes more like reading a story page by page, rather than glancing at a bunch of words. So hopefully you can appreciate the form as we listen to the entire sonatina. I'm actually going to provide brief vocal directions to help guide your listening. So let's give it a shot. Here's the first movement of Dusik's sonatina in the E-flat major, opus 19-20, number 6. Exposition, subject 1.
Exposition, Subject 2. Development Recapitulation As always, if you'd like to hear the recording of this piece uninterrupted, check out the podcast feed. And if you'd like to reach out to me, find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. You can find all of the recordings on this podcast and more at my SoundCloud page. You'll see a playlist on there called Just Music, No Talk for an uninterrupted stream of music without my voice ruining your listening experience. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening and supporting the podcast. Next week, we will continue our trek through history and enter the Romantic period. Just miss Valentine's Day, though. Maybe I should have timed that better. Anyway, talk to you then.